so as we move from the creation to the new creation, we realize the flood narrative of Noah's Ark is a picture of another coming judgment. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Amen. Thank you, Dean. As we approach this heavy text this morning and the whole chapter of Genesis chapter 7, I want to begin with a a concept and and a quote. So A.W. Tozer, in his uh, very foundational book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this, and this is a very helpful and important quote. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he zooms that out from just us individually to the, the church, the body of Christ, and he says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Based on that concept, who exactly is God in the mind of today's Christian or in the mind of today's church? If all we can do is listen to what is taught about God, sung about God, or posted on social media about God. Based on the worship lyrics, on the theology, on the posts, on the behavior ascribed by the the average modern evangelical church or evangelical believer, in the last five to 10 years, the primary characteristic about God is not that he's just, forgiving, or good. The primary attribute that the church is caught up with at this particular cultural moment is that God is powerful. So you listen to the lyrics of the popular modern worship songs, and God is the chain breaker. He's the way maker. He is the one who blesses you more than you could possibly dream of, and I can dream of quite a bit. There's no mountain he's not willing to climb. There's no wall he's not willing to bust through and do some miraculous deed on your behalf. He's the God who does impossible things, and his name is higher than cancer, So make sure you speak what you desire and make sure you use that phrase in Jesus' name. Now, though I think we all resonate with the absolutely biblical sentiment that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, and nothing is impossible with him, to which you would say, amen. We all agree with that. I think if all we do is focus alone on his power and truncate the work of God just to the miraculous works of God, We're leaving much about God unsaid. Now, today the church sees God primarily as miracle worker. About 20 years ago, when we were all a little bit younger in the church, it was not his miracle work, but it was God as divine boyfriend. Jesus was our divine lover who we couldn't get enough romantic experiences with. So we actually sang words like this. I sang words like this in worship services. I feel like moving to the rhythm of your grace. Your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place. Those are words I actually sang with a straight face. Or how about this? This is probably connecting to John's experience at the Last Supper. I want to sit at your feet, 
drink from the cup in your hand. I want to lay back against you and breathe and feel your heartbeat. Or, of course, if your church was controversial, you sang these words, heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. Do you remember that? Some of you don't remember the Crowder controversy, and if you haven't heard of that, praise God. That's fine. No worries. Now, are those lyrics intended for God or for your lover, for your boyfriend? And the truth is, Jesus, yes, is the bridegroom of his church, but that does not necessarily mean you personally are in a romantic love relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. God's people throughout time have always been tempted to fashion the living God into an idol, into a more domesticated deity. Uh, we take all the truth of God and we often want to narrow and focus with a laser intent on just one attribute of God. We prefer, many of us as Christians, a Jesus who is soft and who's huggable. We don't like verses like Revelation chapter 19 that describe a Jesus who's riding a war horse with fire in his eyes, but it's not the fire of deep, deep romantic love for you. No, it's the fire of judgment. It's not intoxicating love. He's a Jesus who's coming to judge and make war, and he's covered in blood. It's not his own blood, it's someone else's, the blood of his enemies. And you read that and go, wait a minute, who is this Jesus? We like Jesus when he's gentle and lowly shepherd, but we bristle when we hear that he's a righteous judge. In fact, our postmodern and tolerant minds have been challenged, if not offended, by the notion of a God who comes in fury to punish evildoers. We often have relegated the attributes of God simply to the love of God, and we just sang about the deep, deep love, and that's I'm so glad we did. That's important for us to do. And yet we cannot zoom in and only look at that one attribute. We have to see God for who the scriptures say he is. Isaiah 33, for example, in verse 22 says this. It says, for Yahweh, the Lord, is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. Isaiah rightly understood that God is simultaneously four things here. He's judge. The judge is the one who condemns the guilty and acquits the innocent. He's the lawgiver. He's the one who creates and defines what is good from evil. He's also the king, the one who has the power to execute that justice and to uphold the law. But he's also our savior. He's the one who alone has the power to rescue us from judgment. We have to understand who God is rightly. And throughout time, God, the judge, has proven his justice in the judgment of his people and his judgment of the ungodly and his judgment even of the nations. Stephen Cole says this, he says, at various times, God has judged individuals, groups, even whole nations. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed when God rained fire and brimstone on them. God ordered Israel to destroy the Canaanites because of their sin. Israel itself was judged by the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 because of rejecting the Messiah. There are many more examples in the Bible, but no other judgment in history was as widespread and severe as that of the flood. As we open Genesis 7 this morning, we get a glimpse of God's judgment. Today we're going to see his severity, but we also see his grace, his kindness. As Paul said to the Romans, note both the severity of God as well as the kindness of God. Severity in his judgment against wickedness, but also kindness 
in his gracious salvation of the righteous. And that's what we're going to do together this morning as we study the account of the global flood. If you weren't here last week, you missed a lot. Chapter 6, the second half, we covered the ark itself. And so this this study this morning will, will not be complete if you don't go back and later listen to the sermon on our website Uh, to get a a bigger, broader picture of uh, the biblical ark. So I encourage you, I commend you to go and listen to that study. If this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. We teach verse by verse through the Bible. So this is not Pastor Pilgrim's hobby horse to talk about judging and judgment and the justice of God. Oh man, Pastor's really in a bad mood today. Uh, No, that's not the case. We go verse by verse and here we are providentially in chapter seven. You just happen to be here on this glorious day as your first Sunday, so welcome. God loves you. He wants you to know his judgment and his justice. So today we're going to see three sections in the text. If you're taking note, I encourage you to jot these down. The whole chapter we're covering, verse 1 through 10, we're going to see the ark. The ark is an invitation to salvation. It's an escape from wrath. Then in verses 11 through 16, we're going to look at the day of judgment, the day the rain came. And this is a historical, universal, and sudden judgment. By the way, those three, that little outline, I did not come up with. Smarter men than me came up with that outline. However, now that I've said it and preached it, it's my outline. So you're welcome to uh, plagiarize me if you want, since I borrowed that from someone else. But at least I told you I did, right? If I didn't tell you, then that is plagiarism. So we'll see the day of judgment, but we'll also see, and this is where, in all seriousness, we have to look at what we're reading today, the magnitude of God's fury that in this judgment of all mankind, of all the earth, God's judgment is just, it's total, and it was inescapable. We'll see that in the last seven verses. Now, it's my prayer as we study this together, church, that we see the glorious riches of the gospel on display, even in the justice of God and his providential wrath against sin. You You and I may bristle or prefer not to Or maybe we get uncomfortable when we see God as judge, but I want to present God as judge today so that when we see God rightly in his judgment, it allows us to see and appreciate more the beauty and the glory of God as our Savior. So let's begin in verse 1, the ark. Look at verse 1 with me. The Lord said to Noah, and he's been saying a lot if you look back in chapter 6, but now he says, go into the ark, you and all your household, Why? For I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, if you're taking note, I want you to circle that phrase, go into the ark or highlight it. And more accurately in the Hebrew, it's come into the ark. It's an invitation. It's a calling. Over the last several weeks and throughout chapter six, we've seen that Noah was justified by faith and that this righteousness from God was credited to his account. Noah was righteous, we learned last week. He was blameless, and he was set apart in his generation. We also learned that he walked with God, he obeyed God, he trusted God. And as I was studying chapter 7 this week, I was really struck by the fact that Noah's household was saved because of Noah's righteousness. What saved his family, his wife, his sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, what saved them was not their own righteousness, but the one who represented their family. And notice that God didn't invite anyone outside of Noah's family into the ark. Noah had been preaching 
been a preacher of righteousness, preaching the coming wrath of God, and yet it was only those that God had chosen by him to receive this undeserved favor while the rest of the world awaited its natural and its, I should point out, desired faith. The world was desiring to go their own way. Some people say, well, hold on. I believe that I have free will, and I believe that free will, free will means I, I am free to choose God, choose Jesus, or free to not choose Jesus. I, I choose to go my way. Uh, and so I'm gonna deny him. But the truth is, the scripture says we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, and that means, oh, your free will remains intact, but your free will always and only is to pursue your own way. You're free to do that, and you will freely always choose that. You will always choose what is contrary to God's law. So in his free will, man was pursuing exactly what he wanted, wickedness, violence, and hostility with God. We learn in chapter six that every intent of his thought, his thoughts were only evil perpetually. And so man was already condemned. There was no hope outside of God's gracious and effectual call to come and be saved. The flood was already coming. And the ark itself was the only exclusive means of salvation. But because of one man's righteousness, and because of God's call, his invitation, those who were united with Noah were saved. Does anyone see any parallels between Noah and the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you didn't see that, then we'll talk later. Now, let's keep reading. Love the picture of the gospel here. Uh, he says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Uh-oh. Oh boy, here it is. We have a contradiction in the Bible. There it is. It says in chapter six, you're to take two of every kind of animal, and then here, just one chapter later, God changes his mind and says, take seven pairs of the clean animals and seven pairs of birds. We have a contradiction in scripture. So it's been fun being a Christian. The Bible is, is irrelevant now. Let's close it up and go home. Oh, none of you are interested in that. Good, good. Um, I actually read this week that a man offered $1,000 to anyone who can find a contradiction, a true contradiction in the Bible. And some liberal, air quotes, scholars testified in a lawsuit that these verses, Genesis 7, 2, and 3, were truly a contradiction because in chapter 6 it says 2 and here it says 7. And guess what happened? The scholars lost the lawsuit and they never saw their money. Why? Because all we have to do is turn the page to the right one chapter to see why God specified seven clean animals and seven birds. Genesis 8:20. you can turn there or look on the screen. It says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. This is no contradiction whatsoever. This is God being more specific. The seven pairs of clean animals and birds are to be sacrificed. If there weren't extra clean animals, just the male and the female, he would have taken them and sacrificed one of them and then the other one would have been alone and it would have gone extinct. And so in God's providence, he's calling Noah, even before he enters the ark, to prepare the new world for worship. You see, these two verses are using temple language. Noah can only enter the ark if a sacrifice has been made. 
in the temple, you could only enter into God's presence if a sacrifice was brought. And church, you and I dare not approach a holy and just God in our own hubris, in our own righteousness. No, we can only come this morning, as we remember every Sunday morning in our call to worship, we only and always come to the throne because of the finished shed blood of Christ, the finished work of God's spotless lamb. Now, verse four says, in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So we see in verse four, a seven day warning before the judgment of the rain and the flood came. One commentary says this, it says, a week for a world to repent. What a solemn pause. But we know the truth, don't we? We know the world did not repent, but perished. God alerts Noah, this judgment is about to begin. It's one week out. But this judgment of rain will continue 40 days and nights. The number 40, if you're taking note, is often associated in the scripture with a time of testing, a time of purification, or when the Lord is about to do a new initiative on behalf of his people. Now, some churches get really excited about that, so it's like 40 days, uh, 40 days of fasting, 40 days of giving, 40 days of uh, vegan, whatever they do. Uh, and I think that's taken a little too far, but if we look in Scripture, we see this often. We, we remember Moses on Mount Sinai. He was there 40 days. The 12 spies, some faithful, most not. They entered Canaan. They were there 40 days. We know Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted. And we know that Israel sojourned in the wilderness for 40 years. So this is often connected uh, with testing purification and when the Lord's about to do a new initiative. And so that's how long the flood is going, or the rain is going to come. So verse 6 gives us some instruction. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the, water, uh, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Now, how exactly did Noah accomplish this? Remember, he's not a zookeeper. He's not, he's not necessarily even an architect. So how, how did he accomplish this? After he constructs the ark, did Noah form an ecological and environmental task force to go out with nets and find squirrels and black mambas and alligators and stay overnight and find some owls and just net them and collect them and bring them into the ark? Well, we have to get out of our minds some of the silly Hollywood notion uh, that is sometimes portrayed uh, of this, but the answer is found in the scriptures. In chapter six, verse 20, it says, of the birds, the animals, of every creeping thing, according to its kind, here it is, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. So it wasn't up to Noah. Noah simply needed to be obedient in his construction of the ark. He needed to be obedient to gather food and supplies, but God was the one who was drawing the animals to the ark. Now, we know scientifically there are, and biologically there are many animals an unbelievably ac uh, acute and accurate migratory instinct. 
And so I don't find it difficult that God could place this instinct within the families of all the animals on earth to be drawn into the ark. And they probably weren't lined up male and female in a long parade as the elephants and giraffe walked in. I don't think that it happened exactly like that as we sometimes portray in our minds. Spurgeon said this. He said, this largest and most complete menagerie that was ever gathered together was not collected by human skill. Divine power alone could have accomplished such a task as that. You might be sitting here as a skeptic and you cross your arms and go, that's impossible. And yet every single day, in every single generation, in every single people group, God has drawn condemned sinners to himself. God has turned the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's made dead men and women spiritually alive And that's a miraculous work of his sovereign grace that we should never get over. Like, I'm impressed that God was able to draw the animals into the ark, but I'm more impressed that God has drawn you and me to his son. If you don't understand the the size of the ark and the the concept of the different families of animals, um, then go back again last week and listen to that sermon. It gives a little more instruction on what's actually happening. So, Let's not overlook the fact that the ark itself is an invitation to salvation. As those who are outside of this gracious and exclusive provision would only be a week away from certain doom. And that brings us to the second section, the day of judgment. Notice that in verse 11, it's first historical. We see in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. This is a historical account. This is no myth. This is not legend. This is rooted in history. We have specific, traceable dates. We have the 600th year of Noah's life. We have the second month. We have the 17th day. That's very specific. Now, if we're keeping a Hebrew calendar, and we looked at the Hebrew calendar, the second month of the year would actually not be February, it'd be October-ish, in the October range. And it would be over a year later in our calendars that Noah exits the ark again on dry land. We'll learn that next week as we continue our study of uh, the flood. Uh, It probably is not coinciding the Hebrew calendar with the beginning of Noah's life. uh, And that would just be very coincidental. And so all we know is that On the 600th year, on the second month, on the 17th exact day, uh, Noah and his family entered the ark. Now, that makes sense because this is a new world. And in this new world, it makes sense for Adam and his family who are repopulating it to keep accurate details regarding precisely when they went into and when they exited the ark. So this is a historical day of judgment. But not only that, not only does the scripture here confirm that, but both the apostle Peter and Jesus, the Lord himself, refer to Noah's flood as a picture of how people will respond in these last days to God's judgment. And so if Peter, the apostle, and Jesus, our Lord, were both speaking about something that was not actually historical, that was just a myth or a legend, well, then both Jesus and Peter were misleading their followers. And we know that's certainly not the case. Now, outside of the Bible... There is a flood, pun intended, of evidence that speaks to, culturally, a worldwide global flood. 
James Montgomery Boyce specifically cites the legends of tribes in New Guinea, of the natives in America, even specific tribes in Arizona, Brazilian tribes, Peruvian, uh, African, Greenland, native Hawaiian Islanders, Hindu, Chinese, Egyptians, Greeks, Persians, Australian natives, the Welsh, the Celtics, the Druids, the Siberians, even the Lithuanians. Uh, these people, all these peoples have stories of a worldwide deluge. In fact, over 200 different distinct cultures all have a flood account in their history. And the vast majority of those accounts include certain things. They include a family that boarded a boat with eight people surviving. They speak of a disaster of a flood because of man's wickedness. They speak about animals being saved and about survivors ending up on a mountain. Many of these accounts, not the majority, but many of them have birds being sent out and a rainbow afterwards. Now, of course, there's lots of variations between these stories, as you would expect over thousands of years. And in each different cultural context, some of them intermingled their animist beliefs in with those accounts. Uh, and some have asserted that because the Gilgamesh epic predates when the Bible was written, that means Moses read the Gilgamesh epic and said, that's bad theology. Let me fix the theology of this story and make it Jewish, and that will tweak it. And they would argue because he did that, or they think he did that, that now Genesis or this account of the flood is made up. And I would say, okay, yeah, some of the stories may predate when the Bible was physically written. But remember, Moses physically wrote down Genesis to record what had been passed down orally for many, many generations. And so when you have a worldwide distribution uh, of a flood narrative from every continent in the world, that does not mean that the Bible stole those stories and spun a new, better theological story. No, it speaks there was a common source. And the common source to all of these stories was Noah's family itself. So not only is the flood historical, but secondly, it was universal. There are some who argue that this was a local flood with a straight face. This was just an ancient Near East Mesopotamian flood. And here's why this is erroneous. David Gusick points out, if this were not a global flood, first of all, the ark itself is unnecessary. What happens when it floods in Florida? We get to higher ground. Well, we don't really have higher ground in Florida, do we? We have interstates and landfills, and that's about it. You just get to higher ground. Just get out of that area. Uh, secondly, if this were only a local flood, remember God promises never again to flood the earth. Uh, that promise is false if it's a local flood because we've had local floods even this year. Thirdly, if this were only a local flood, the Bible is incorrect in tracing humanity back to Noah's sons. So this is a universal flood. Now, note with me verse 11. Verse 11 says that the water came from two primary sources. It says, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. Now, normally, when we think about Noah's flood and the rain, we're not wrong to think of the windows of heaven and the rain coming down, but often we neglect the first source. And the first source is that the great fountains of the deep are ruptured or they open up, they burst forth. Now, some scientists speculate that the antediluvian earth, the earth before the flood, had an expansive water vapor 
in the atmosphere that helped blanket the earth from radiation. And this covering uh, was interrupted in some way and, and descended to the planet over the course of 40 days and nights with constant rainfall. Uh, other scientists postulate that there was a little last ice age around 10,000 BC. And some of them believe that the flood may have coincided with this timing. And if that's the case, if we have uh, a little ice age now melting, we'd have heavy rain now over normally dry regions. We'd have melting ice, which would cause the depths of the sea to rise as much as 300 feet and overtake previously habitable land. So that's certainly possible. But we can't overlook that much of the floodwaters came because of that first source, the fountains of the great deep bursting open. These may have been vast subterranean supplies of water that previously, as we learn in Genesis 1 and 2, supplied the earth with ground mist and water. And now these begin to erupt and rupture and, and empty out. Uh, we certainly see evidence of this in many of the caverns in North America uh, and throughout, geologically throughout the world. Uh, Henry Morris says this, kind of painting the picture. He says, with torrential rains smothering the atmosphere and soaking the ground and subsurface water bursting from its confines, the surface of earth would be quickly torn apart. The explosions from the fountains of the great deep would blow enormous rents in the continental plates, allowing magma from the earth's core to erupt. And then he goes on to say this, just picture what this would look like. We often don't remember or consider this part of the flood. Molten rock gushing into water would generate scalding steam that would add its own energy to the rolling mixture of water and debris. As the waters of the seas surged to fill the emptying chasms, tsunamis would be generated, strong rip currents and undertows would rapidly develop and would quickly extinguish any coastal settlement or city within a few hours. Just picture what that would have been like. As Peter aptly stated, the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. You see, this day of judgment was not only historical and universal, it was also sudden. One day there's no rain. After seven days, on this particular day, the rain began to fall, and it didn't stop for 40 days and nights. And though it was sudden, it was not without warning. God had given mankind plenty of time to repent, but just consider this for a minute, folks. On the day the rain came, there was no more mercy available. There was a day that came when God's patience had run out. When presuming upon God's mercy or his patience, one day proved too late. Verses 12 through 15 reiterate what we've already seen but then we come to verse 16 and we read these words. Those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. I think it's amazing that the animals submit to the, the command of God. All creation stands in subjection to the judge. And these animals obey in submission. And Noah, again, does not have to figure out some scaffolding or rope pulley system in how to close the door. Have you ever wondered, how does he close the door? We have to have a door large enough to fit the animals and yet small enough to be able to seal 
And how do we seal it from the inside? This is going to be challenging. And yet the answer is right here in the text. It says God himself, the Lord himself shut him in. It's a good reminder that those who are saved don't seal themselves, but are sealed and kept by God. Amen? Amen. So the day of judgment is a day that was historical, it was universal, and it ultimately was a day that came suddenly. Though without, it wasn't without warning. Now let's look at this third section, and what I want to do is, as we look at this third section, I want us to see the extent of the, of the judging, of the judgment. So let's look at the magnitude of fury, and I want us to see that it's just, it's total, and it's inescapable. So verse 17 says, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. It wasn't a day of rain, it was 40 days. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So 25 feet would have been high enough, certainly, to snuff out any man, uh, woman, or creature. But notice it's 25 feet or so above the highest mountain. And it's not that some flesh died or some mankind died, just the really evil, violent sinners died. Notice verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. There's some sobriety in this. There should be. And this seems to be a global cleansing of the filth, violence, and uncleanness of the earth. As we learned last week, this is sort of a throwback to Genesis 1, uh, verses 2 and 3, where the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. Well, now the waters are, that, that were tamed are now chaotic again, and they're unleashed. And this is almost an act of recreation. But notice with me that anything that was living on the earth and that breathed oxygen was destroyed. Surely there must be some scientific record of this somewhere. Now, originally in my notes, I wrote this sentence, if this account is true, but of course that's not correctly, that's not the correct way of saying that. Since this account is true, not if it's true, since it's true, we should expect to find, as Ken Ham says, billions of dead things laid down in rock layers all over the earth. And what do we find? Billions of dead things lay down in rock layers all over the earth. We find the existence of organic material and coal, exactly what we would expect to find if there was a global catastrophic flood. Now, we look and paleontologists look and find fossils, and there's movies about it, fossils coming back to life and uh, killing people. You may have seen it this weekend, Top Gun. <clears throat> uh, but fossils do... Uh, do take sometimes a long time to form, but paleontologists recently have found that fossils can form even within hours. If you give the proper amount of pressure and heat, a fossil can form. There has to be sedimentary or soft rock, there must be mud or clay, and then there must be sudden force. So that's why when the armadillo roadkill on the side of the road doesn't become a fossil, it's because those factors weren't in place. There wasn't high pressure, there wasn't a soft sedimentary rock, 
and that sudden intense heat and pressure. So when we study the fossil record, we see the evidence corroborates with a global catastrophic flood where billions of living things were buried alive in water and mud and preserve what we know as fossil remains. Now, not only do we have great evidence in the fossil record, but also in the geologic column. The geologic column is very challenging for evolutionists because it's never consistent on the planet. Well, it's this period uh, above this period, and this is the time frame. None of those ever corroborate around the world. It's, it's circular reasoning when they try to explain the dates. And so the argument is these rock strata were laid down over many millennia. And yet, we had a fascinating event happen on May 18th, 1980, near Seattle. Does anybody know what happened? Were you there? May 18th, 1980, near Seattle? Very good. Good. You guys were there. I was too, so I don't really particularly remember that event. But Mount St. Helens erupted. And in a matter of hours, the hot ash reset the landscape. Answers in Genesis says this. They say, ultimately, and we'll just leave that picture up, the events and processes at this volcano challenge our way of thinking about how the earth works. We've, we've been programmed to learn or think that the earth changes piecemeal by slow and gradual processes, which accumulate small changes over immense periods of time. But what we see at Mount St. Helens is that rapid processes accomplish significant, ge significant geologic changes in very short periods of time. They went back and they studied, oh, here's all the geologic column laid down in, in hours. And so we uh, find that to be a very helpful uh, revelation of uh, the geologic column not being uh, something that's long periods of time, but something that could have been formed very quickly. In fact, when uh, our family was in Grand Canyon last summer, uh, I got it on video. I'm not going to show you the video, but I got my kids walking up for the first time to see the Grand Canyon with their own eyes. And it was priceless just to see their jaws dropping and the ah and the oohs coming out. Uh, you can't really impress teenagers anymore so uh, without a screen, and so it was great. So um, the evolutionary uh, scientists there were, were looking at the, the canyon, and the geologists were saying, We'll see, what happened was a very little bit amount of water over a very long period of time formed the Grand Canyon. And of course, being the creationist and pastor that I am, I wanted to yell out loud, that's exactly wrong. Uh, I believe the exact opposite of that. I believe that it was a lot of water over a very short period of time that formed the Grand Canyon. But as we sit back in the classroom and argue over the merits of science and scientific data, I want these next two verses to really uh, cause us to look at the judgment of God in a new light. Verse 23, this is the same God we just sang about, his deep, deep love for his people. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Not a day, not a week, not 10 days, 150 days. Consider the magnitude of this judgment, the extent of it. And some of us in our bravado and our self-righteousness, we cross our arms with anger and we wag our finger and our tongue at God and we say, how does the punishment fit the crime? 
If you and I believe in a God who just winks at sin, and he's just waiting with bated breath to do some miraculous work on your behalf so you can have a joyful and more comfortable Thursday, then this story may seem unfair to you. It may seem unjust that the God who's supposed to be here at my beck and call and be the genie I rub in the right way so he'll do whatever I ask him to do, well, that seems unfair. If your view is that God just loves and affirms every lifestyle, then you don't know or believe the God of the Bible. God's fury in his wrath is just. It is right, it is total, and it was inescapable. This should not cause us to be turned away in some sort of hostility towards God. No, that should cause us to worship a God who's holy, who's awesome, who's pure, who's good, and who's equitable. We bristle at the justice of God, and yet, if you've ever been on the the wrong side of injustice, if you've ever been the recipient of injustice, and you cry out like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Well, then when God is just and he comes to your aid, he comes to your assistance, then you, you worship him for who he is, and you worship him for his justice, because it's good. It's equitable. In fact, we learn who God is in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And in that narrative, it's echoed more than any other concept in the scripture that Yahweh is merciful and he's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he keeps his steadfast love for thousands of generations. That is true of God. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. We just, we just had a time of confession and we do every week to remember that God forgives our iniquity. But don't forget this last attribute. It says, who will by no means clear the guilty, but will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Some of us still, we go, no, that's not fair. Why would God pour out his wrath upon three or four generations. And yet, I would say it's more unbelievable that he shows his mercy to thousands of generations. You see, church, we must know and worship the God of the scriptures, not the false God we've propped up in our minds. He's a God of love to be sure, but his love always demands justice and truth. And so as we move from the creation to the new creation, we realize the flood narrative of Noah's ark is a picture of another coming judgment. Paul told the men in Athens in Acts 17, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul there speaks of a day. He has fixed a day. The Old and New Testament scriptures speak of a day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Like Noah's flood, this day is historical. It's coming. A day is coming. This day is not a judgment for just a handful of sinners. It's universal. Like Noah's flood, this judgment day will be sudden, but it will not be without warning. Jesus, the righteous judge, will come quickly and his fury against sin will be just, it'll be total, and folks, it's inescapable. Revelation 20, the end of the book, so to speak, says, then I saw a great white throne. Who sits on the throne? Who sits on the throne? The king. 
the one who has the power to execute and mete out justice. It says, and him who is seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. So where do you hide if earth and sky are gone? No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. He goes on to say, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades itself were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, like the ark, God has given us an invitation to salvation and an escape from his fearsome wrath. He sent his own son, Jesus, our Lord, to fulfill his law and to die at the hands of lawless sinners. Jesus' death fully and forever pays the price to redeem those who are joined to his righteousness. Just as Noah's ark was sufficient and predetermined and exclusive, the same is true of our Savior and our salvation. There is no other name under heaven given by which we may be saved. Folks, there's no escaping this day of judgment. There will be no second chances. You may cast off God's law for a time, to be sure. You may choose to walk in your own way in rebellion, but eventually the ticking clock of time and God's patience will run out. Jonathan Edwards said, although men will not have God for their lawgiver, yet they shall have him for their judge. And I don't say this with any joy in my heart or any excitement. I say this with brokenness, with sobriety, with heaviness, that unless you renounce your sin and receive Christ as Savior by faith, you will go to hell. And I tell you that because I love you because I long for you to know the riches of his glory, to be joined with Christ, to know what is the glorious riches of his, of his inheritance, and to know the hope to which he's called you. Some of you this morning, I fear, may sit back and say, I'm not there yet. I've got a long life to live. I'm young, and what I'm planning to do is not repent and trust Christ today, but when I am about to die, on that day, when I'm on my deathbed, just in my last despairing few breaths, that's when I'll receive Christ. I'll, I'll do what the thief on the cross did. And the thief on the cross is a glorious story, isn't it? But I like what J.C. Ryle said, just to paraphrase him. He said, we have one biblical account of a deathbed repentance in order that no man need despair, but we have only one in order that no man may presume. As we close this morning, we understand all mankind stands before a just judge and we are guilty. We might feel that we were born a good person, but the scripture reminds us there's none righteous, not even one. But friends, the hope of the gospel, the hope that you and I have, is not that we come in our own righteousness. It's that by faith in Christ, you and I have been declared righteous. 
The scripture says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Your sin, my sin, has been forgiven. And although he had done no violence, there is no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush our Savior. And out of the anguish of his soul, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus came to receive the judgment of God against your sin so that you and I might be free, that you and I might be joined with him. Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved and if you're not a follower of Christ, this wrath still looms overhead. And so I implore you today, repent, renounce your sin, renounce your rebellion, turn today. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ. May today be the day that you have forgiveness of sins and the hope of the gospel. Because one day you'll either hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Or you'll hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The difference is, have you known and trusted Christ? For those of us who do know Christ, who do trust Christ, this reality of coming judgment is not something we should be bashful of. It's not something we should shrink back from. We don't need to apologize or be embarrassed by what the Bible speaks about the justice of God. In fact, on the contrary, the knowledge of the coming judgment of God should give us sobriety in our faith. It should make us wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. The coming day of the Lord should produce awe and wonder and gratitude in our salvation. Like the psalmist prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sometimes that comes when we see that wrath is coming, that hell is real. In fact, God's judgment should empower us in bold, courageous witness as we proclaim this glorious gospel. Christ is the Savior, yes, but he's the judge and he's the king, amen? I think the words of the hymn, Hail Sovereign Love, are appropriate for each one of us who know and confess Christ this morning. The words of this hymn say this, Hail Sovereign Love, which first began this scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail sovereign, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high. I despise the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's mount, fiery mount I flew. But justice cried with frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. It's not the law. Ere long, a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel soon appeared. He led me on with gentle pace to Jesus Christ, my hiding place. On him, almighty vengeance fell, that must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race, and thus became their hiding place. And so for us, friends, this is our admonishment. Exalt the Lord. His praise proclaim. Let every saint now raise his name. Forevermore we'll see his face, the face of Christ, our hiding place. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me and let's bring this before the Lord. Our gracious Savior, you are indeed our hiding place. This morning, we acknowledge in the midst of this judgment that's so heavy to read about, 
Just as the ark was the shelter from the storm, Lord, you are our rock of refuge who has delivered us from another flood, the flood of the wrath of God against sin. Apart from salvation, there is no hope. Apart from the ark, mankind perished. And today that wrath looms overhead if we repent not, if we trust not Christ. And so, Father, we bless you that for our sake, you made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might in him become the righteousness of God. We bless you, Father, for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, for choosing us in him before the foundation of the world, and for your effectual call to come in, to be joined with Christ and be saved. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing about that conviction of sin, and I pray that you're convicting folks even today if they know not Jesus as Savior. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making us alive through regeneration, for sealing us, keeping us until the day of redemption, and for empowering us as bold witnesses of Christ's gospel. And so, Lord, in a day where Christ is not renowned, where the word of God is maligned, where people decry the holiness of God, Lord, we pray that we would be clear in the face of fear, that we would be faithful rather than fashionable, that we would be convicted of sin rather than being conformed to this world. And the world that we live in stands naked and condemned before that awful and great day of the Lord. In that reality, we bear both the sorrow and the sobriety, understanding that many will say to you on that day, Lord, Lord, and yet you'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. So we ask, Triune God, that you'd fill us with power and with courage to proclaim the full counsel of God. You'd fill us with love and humility for those who are at enmity with you, and many of them are even in our families. We pray that you'd strengthen us with grace in our inner man, and you'd use us all our days for your glory and our joy. Lord, may we learn to rightly worship you as king, lawgiver, and judge, even as we do sufficient and loving Savior. It's for Christ's sake we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.